Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and this week I'm here with author Daniel Brom. So Daniel is the author of the short story collection The Night Marchers and other strange tales from Cemetery Dance and more. Brom's stories are full of rich settings spanning the globe and explore the tension between the psychological and the supernatural. Many of his stories he calls strange tales, intentionally adopting the term used by Robert Aikman. His work has appeared several times in Cemetery Dance Magazine and in places ranging from Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, edited by Kelly Link, to the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12, edited by Ellen Datlow. The Serpent's Shadow is Brahms' first novella and appears for the first time in print from Cemetery Dance Publications. He is the host of the New York Ghost Story Festival and the Nighttime Logic Reading Series. You can find him on his YouTube channel, Daniel Brahm, on social media and in his Nighttime Logic column on Cemetery Dance Online. Before we get started, don't forget to go ahead and go to whatever streaming platform you're using and hit that subscribe button, give us a five-star review, and be sure to tell all your friends. So let's go ahead and dive in with Daniel Brom. So we have a mutual friend, Rebecca Roland, and she mentioned I had her on my other podcast, The Weirdest Thing, back in the spring, and she mentioned you, and she talked about how you collect vintage Twilight Zone magazines. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm just i'm really curious about that like how did that start what 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 is it about that magazine in particular oh great great question and yeah. great uh great shout out to rebecca I, yeah i think rebecca is a fantastic author and also mm-hmm. really talented editor she's actually going to be coming on the show i think just in a couple of weeks we're going to be talking about her new book all right great i'm going to yeah. tune in to, to check that out yeah you know like uh <laughs> the twilight <laughs> so the twilight so the twilight zone magazine there's a lot of things I can say about the Twilight Zone magazine. The first thing that I will say is one of the things I like to do is I like to to collect, or it's not even collect, I just like to have copies of my favorite short stories of all time in their like original mm-hmm. appearance. And one of my favorite short stories is one called Because Their Skins Are Finer. It's by Kenneth Lee. It came out apparently in 83 in twilight zone magazine so that was like oh i didn't even know twilight zone magazine was a thing i didn't Mm -hmm. i'm one of those guys that i didn't know about it coming down the pipe so i'm like twilight zone had a magazine how super cool i got the issue that issue many years back and you know i started to like you know buy more buy like a lot on ebay so i'm like you know i'm kind of a collector we're we're collectors especially Mm -hmm. of of horror and weird fiction and twilight zone fiction so when i came down to uh, convention scares that cares i just had some doubles and triples and i'm just didn't want to like resell those things i'm like who's not gonna love to just have uh, <laughs> have one of those so i just was giving them away to my friends and colleagues or if you bought a book at my table i was like hey grab grab a twilight zone next there's a lot more i can say about it yeah. but that's- <laughs> well uh, so you mentioned tanith lee i actually have not read that particular story but obviously tanith lee is a fantastic writer who are some of the other authors because i mean the thing about and it's kind of what i want to get to is i know the editor of twilight zone magazine and at least for a while was T.E.D. Klein. Yes. And he managed to, like, I, I've not, I don't think I've ever actually, because it was a little bit before my time, so. Me too, me too. I don't think I've ever actually seen the magazine, like an actual, like, physical copy of it. But I've looked at, like, just the roster of authors he got yeah. in there. And they were, like, incredible. Like, who are some well, of the you're other gonna, writers? You're, you're going to have to send me your uh, postal address for, after we get up. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there'll be a little mail package coming your way. After <laughs> well, that this. would be awesome. But now forget about what I just said. So you'll be surprised. Oh uh, yeah, you know the roster. The roster. It's it's a who's who of the best that ever was. Mm-hmm. You know, right down right down to Stephen King. 
Stephen King's uh, some of those stories predate Skeleton Crew, such as The Wrath. You know, oh, of, that's right. He did did start with that in the first appearance of The Wrath. One of another one of my favorite short stories. So when I've got this lot of Twilight Zone magazines, it's like, oh my god, Stephen King is in there. Peter Straub is in there. Right, you know, yeah, right down to to, to an eclectic mix of you know who's who of eighties horror, and that was a little bit before my time. I I, I was kind of a King uh, a King Barker reader, and that mm-hmm. was you know, I wasn't such a big well, I didn't I didn't know the riches of eighties <laughs> horrors in there, but yeah, you can pretty much pick up any copy of Twilight Zone magazine, and in addition just to like having it be a time capsule, there there's going to be top notch horror, top notch horror, just top notch fi- top notch fiction in there it's definitely a hidden treasure and it's just it's kind of fun if you like that kind of stuff well it's just you know when we think about the classic you know magazines horror fiction magazines you know, you go back you know everyone knows weird tales uh we obviously we have cemetery dance which has been around yeah and, and obviously you have a relationship with cemetery dance but somehow you know twilight zone magazine is just one that people don't talk about much and i forget about it but then when i think about the fact that ted klein was he wasn't the only editor i think they went through a few editors but he was, yeah, was he, he had a first? long I, I think he may I think he may have had the longest stretch. I, I'm not sure about this, but maybe um maybe it was I don't know if it was Serling or Serling's daughter, but he had he definitely had the lion's share of it. You know, I'll have mm-hmm. to check that out. But yeah, he, he was responsible for a lot of that. Yeah, totally so it was apparently a newsstand magazine, and, and when people see it, even people, you know, young younger people, mo- a lot of people remember it, but I guess it just had its heyday and then just didn't Mm-hmm. In the Twilight Zone, just kind of is relegated to uh, Sci-Fi Channel New Year's Day reruns. But like, it, I think it was at one point, it was a pretty popular newsstand thing, and mm-hmm. had the distinction of you know, having what we might think of as outlier fiction or weird fiction, having like that weird stuff be kind of mainstream with that kind of mainstream tie-in to mm-hmm. Twilight Zone. Like you know, even like our parents, like oh, the Twilight Zone. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested in the Twilight Zone because I use it my. My writing is kind of eclectic and on the margins and I use it as a bridge, mm-hmm. you know, when people kind of roll their eyes, I'm like, oh, it's just like, yeah, it's like, think to Twilight Zone. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. I get it. Well, and I think, I, I feel like you and I were probably close to the same age. And like, for me, the 80, you know, the movie, the Twilight Zone movie and mm-hmm. the 80s series of the Twilight Zone, because uh, I actually didn't watch the original series until I was a little bit older. I just, I don't think I had access to it. But I remember the 80s TV series. Those were among the biggest influences, I think, on my writing. And I feel like from what I've read of your work, I can definitely see that influence. And that's kind of where, where I was wanting to go with bringing this up is, you know, T.E.D. Klein's one of my favorite writers. I mean, he's one of the great, he's he's like horrors on J.D. Salinger, kind of, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he, he, you know, he put out a couple books and then just kind of disappeared for a long time. Yeah. But... I having read I've read a few of your stories, short stories at this point. You have a lot of it looks like you have a ton of short fiction out there. And then your your novel, which is coming out um in September. And I feel like, and tell me if I'm this is just a stretch, but particularly with your novel, I feel like I see a TED client influence in there. Were you a reader of his work as well as uh reading the Twilight Zone? So yeah, here's the thing. Like that that sounds like a wonderful compliment. And I must admit that I've never I've never read a word. I've got wow. after after <laughs> and because and it's because um and it's not out of desire. I'm kind of a newcomer or an outsider to the riches of horror and Maybe not so much anymore. You know, I mean, over the last ten years or so, I've really mm-hmm. been self-educating. I've got all of his books on my shelf. You know, especially <laughs> his, na- his names come up all the time. Especially knowing that 
he was his editor and yeah i'm i'm really great at buying books i'm not so good <laughs> i'm not so good at reading them even even the ones that i'm dying to now like even as you're speaking i'm like ah oh, i wish i had read you know so like now you know <laughs> i've got them on my shelf i probably flipped through it and read it enough to be like oh my god this looks great mm -hmm. people people who i respect have recommended like oh you've got to read them so uh yeah just hearing you say that you um, yeah. He's such an influence to to you. It's just like an, even another reason to like shuffle the stacks again. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get a chance, read um. It, it's his novel, The Ceremonies, is great. But yep. what I, the one I love, the book of his I love is Dark Gods, which is his uh, collection. Okay, yeah, of I've got it. I've I've got it. It's staring me. It's literally like staring <laughs> me in the face. I, I I look at it every couple of days when I, I shelve a book. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one story in particular. Uh, I think I think it's the first novella in there it's uh children of the kingdom which definitely i reminded me in some ways of your novel and some of it's the the connection to like central americans i don't want to say too much about it you all right well it. yeah you, you i think i know what i'm doing tonight so yeah <laughs> um well that's interesting that's interesting you hadn't actually read him because i thought for sure there had to be new it just, you know it's it's well i don't want to jump ahead too much uh i'm excited to talk about the book thank you but i i I want to back up a little bit and just like get a sense of like your journey kind of as a writer and like when did you start writing when did you realize you were a writer and kind of was it always horror was that was that always the draw or was that something you kind of found your way to later great question because I, I'll de I'll definitely say that is a I always had a love of horror and the mm -hmm. dark but if I had to, if this is a multiple choice question, I, I I definitely pick found my way to it. And I thought when I, maybe at 20, 25, pushing 25 years ago, when I, I was like, yeah, let's, it's time to get serious as a writer. Let's see what being a writer means. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of myself as being a horror writer. I was like aiming, you know, it just shows my aim on the dartboard of like fantasy, science fiction. I mean, I always liked the darkness, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I, I really wasn't getting much traction but then i got a couple of stories accepted to cemetery dance magazine this is back in the um you know uh the 2000s and then i'm like oh this, this wow there there is this thing called horror <laughs> and it's not and it's not necessarily you know it sounds a little naive to be saying this but it's true it's not necessarily what i thought and it's this mm -hmm. wide umbrella and it's this umbrella that's wide enough to have someone like me in there and when i say like me to make it short we, you know, we talked about Twilight Zone. We talked about those kind of stories or the TV mm -hmm. plan influences. I love those kind of stories. I love the outliers. The, the mm -hmm. I don't think of it as outlier. To me, it's it's um, it's ingenuous and and organic when doing it. But I love stories that are ambiguous or intentionally mm -hmm. ambiguous. And I eventually found my way into horror thanks to two things. One, just just cemetery dance claiming me. You know, that, that's a, a strong word, but cemetery dance saying like you fit. You're mm -hmm. you're one of us. And the other big moment in my life was attending a panel discussion, hearing the great, the late great um, departed Peter Straub talk about mm. the author Robert Aikman. Straub's work as well is is huge and hugely right. influential. But but it was Straub, Peter Straub talking about Robert Aikman and, and just off the cuff analyzing it that all sorts of bells were going off on me. I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's okay to be like this. It's okay. And I'm being rough. It's okay to have that Twilight Zone feel. It's okay to have that strange tale aspect. Mm -hmm. And that was how I found my way to both horror and to sort of my perceived niche of 
where I fit in that beautiful large framework of all the different flavors. Well, it's it's interesting because I'll admit I was not really familiar with your work. I think I'd read a couple of your short stories, but then uh, Rebecca, you know, she was really kind of pushing like you need to read uh, and talk to uh, Daniel. Thank you so much, Rebecca. <laughs> and having read some of your stuff now, I feel like I definitely feel like you and I are trying in our own way to do kind of a similar thing. Like, uh, yeah, I think from what you from what you said in the beginning. <laughs> of your I'm like, all right, yeah, you know, like I got it. Now I got to read Scotty stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a Scotty and TV decline marathon in the future. I think it's coming up here. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you know, it's I love all. I love all. Like for me, I've always wanted to be a horror writer since probably 1990 when I first wow. started. And I'm with you. Like I started with King and Barker. Those were my two. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah ways in but then there was the twilight zone then it was a lot of the classic pulp uh richard matheson uh was a big influence i didn't discover robert aikman until a little bit later but then he obviously was an influence um i love cosmic horror i love lovecraft you know but you know we're in this horror community which is a broad tent but so much you know and i've and i've talked to several on people on this podcast who fit in the category of you know kind of the more extreme horror yeah writers which i have an i can definitely have an appreciation for I, I you know i have an appreciation for the kind of the splatter punks and stuff but i never have felt like i really fit into that world so it was actually really like reading some of your stuff um was a it was like a real revelation to me because I was like, oh, we're kind of like, okay, here's someone uh, with you. a similar, not exactly, you know, I think we have different styles, but like a similar yeah, sensibility, man. similar kind of. Yeah, at of least thing. we're on the same side of the continuum. Right. You know, that's the beauty of it. Like when you go to like one of these conventions or even at a bookstore, you know, like people, it's all different flavors. People could be like, oh, yeah, let me have, let me grab my extreme. Let me grab my pulp. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, let me grab my quiet heart. You know, people can let, and all the different flavors play well together or play well <laughs> together in a meal or thing you know even if like yeah for saying i happen to not be yeah an extreme person an extreme horror person the serpent shadow might be the most the most violent or most uh, extremely depicted that i've gone so far but um yeah that, that's neither here nor there you know it's just about mm -hmm. communicating to readers what what's inside the package i guess yeah. well what i like and again i don't want to jump ahead too much but one thing i do like about the serpent shadow is it's a very i feel like it's a cosmic horror novel it's a folk horror novel it's got a lot of quiet horror and then you have like but you do have just enough of the like i don't know if i would call it extreme but you have you definitely have some uh there's some blood splatter <laughs> towards yeah, the you end. know there's a little bit of that like i was not while i knew those names of those things that you just said at the time I was writing it, I really didn't know it in great detail. I didn't set out to, especially folk horror. Like that was just like this vast. I'm like, folk horror is a thing. What what is it? You know, and right. and cos and cosmic horror as well. These were things that came to me. I became educated on that after the fact. You know, when when you know trying to communicate the book mm -hmm. um, to people. But the, the one thing I did know was that you know because I had a self perception of horror. Like right, like especially because. It gets the most attention in cinema of it being like you know the gore or the blood and i knew yeah, that the wasn't me right. and when when i knew um i was working with norman prentice uh he was the acquiring editor on this one and he, he was my editor i knew that i wanted to deliver to him a book that at least in my perception was more horror than than my short stories that i had delivered to cemetery dance mm. 
And, and a lot of that sim simply meant, you know, when I asked myself or I went back and looked at some feedback from my mentors and teachers, some of it was just not cutting away, not stopping the camera, not mm -hmm. looking away. So there's some of scenes where I don't, I don't think it's gratuitous, but there are some places no. in other of my works where I may have gone with the, yeah, it's more scary what you don't see. But at least in The Serpent's Shadow, there are a few scenes where there are some fast and furious scenes where the, the camera is still on. And um yeah, and that, that without knowing the names for that, that was an intentional thing and perhaps the most intentional I've been in my process. Normally, I'm just like, story's got to be what it wants to be. And it's got to be the length it mm -hmm. wants to be. And we'll we'll figure out the box after. But The Serpent Shadow, I was like, yeah, let's let's deliver a heart. And that's interesting because, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm sort of shopping around a uh, collection of some of, uh, it would be my first collection and it's some of the stuff I've published kind of in like the 2020 to 2022 realm. Mm -hmm. And going through the collection, I really realized I was like, oh, this leans pretty heavily in the quiet horror direction. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's a couple moments of, of violence here and there, but it's much more in the quiet horror, which is, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong with it. I love that. Um, oh, yeah. But I've also been like, okay, I want to try and like push myself in out of my yeah. comfort zone a little. And having gone to KillerCon last year and hung out with some more of the Splatterpunk yeah, type writers, yeah. kind of reinvigorating some of my love for some of that. I've been trying to push myself a little bit more in that direction and find ways to kind of integrate my quiet horror, cosmic horror sensibility with like moments of extreme horror. And it sounds like it was a similar thing for you where it was a, a very conscious choice. How did it feel? Like, did it feel did it feel like it was outside of your comfort zone when you were kind of pushing the blood it, a little bit more? In, in this one, it didn't. I'll tell you where it felt like I was crossing a line is a little bit extreme, but I'm fortunate enough that I have to have the opportunity to know Dallas Meyer, Jack Ketchum, and you know, oh met, yeah, um, and I you know it's really funny. We, we had a, a friendship. I was fortunate enough, and I confessed to him. I was like, Dallas, I've I've never read. I've not I've not read a single word. And, you know, he <laughs> just kind of like. He kind of laughed and, yeah. and he's like, why? I'm like, it's going to, I know it's going to fuck me up, man. You know, like just from, <laughs> just from people's things. And I took a class of his, like a Stoker con or whatever, a horror con class. And if you come to the lesson of Jack Ketchum as a teacher is don't look away. You know, like mm -hmm. when he, you know, how he teaches, how he would teach that, you know, it's like, you know, uh, a second to learn a lifetime to master. In my short story collection, Underworld Dreams, there's a short story called The Monkey Coat. Mm. And that was where I felt like I was practicing, you know, like having Dallas on my shoulder and be like, all right, the instinct is to cut it here, but show that, show mm. that, right? That And that was like, okay, normally if I just was following my own, you know, writing without any voices in the head, so to speak, mm -hmm. not, to, not to confess the voices in that, but no, normally I think as a writer, it's a great thing to block out those voices in your head, block out the voices of doubt, and praise you know but just to be in your own zone in your own world but i remember when drafting that story i was like all right this is going to be one where let's let's try this mm -hmm. and yet and it, it felt something different and I, i'm not sure what it felt like but it did feel different mm, interesting i haven't read that one yet i did i do want to talk about another story from that collection which um is one of my favorite stories i've read in probably the last five years thank you but again again not wanting to jump ahead too much so when you started like seriously focusing on writing it sounds like you're more drawn or at least were kind of working in like the the sci-fi fantasy realm who were some of your influences there uh you know like <laughs> emphasis on the word sort of because <laughs> without being self-deprecating i didn't know what the fuck i was doing in terms of that <laughs> stuff i just knew what i liked so right mm -hmm. like like you know like after king and barker for me it was lucia shepherd and tanith lee 
I don't know mm. what I don't know what you call Lucia Shepard and Tanith Lee, but the thing is, you could call Lucia Shepard and or Tanith Lee science fiction, fantasy, or horror, and you'd be right on all three and wrong on all right. You know, so it's like the, the, now that you say it, the Lucia Shepard, I can definitely, I feel like I can yeah. see that. Lucia Shepard was a huge influence on me, and I, and I and I didn't even know it was an influence. I just knew, like, when I read Lucia Shepard, I'm like, this is why I want to read. And the mm-hmm. same thing, and the same thing with Tanfley. I'm like, this is the shit. This is everything about any one of their stories, almost without fail, is like, this is why I want to read. And at first, subconsciously, and then more consciously, I'm like, this is this is what gives me joy as a writer. You know, this is what I want to, mm-hmm. at least for me as a writer, not even thinking about what I want in audience read, but I, I want to. I want to write stuff you know, like mm-hmm. that and be there. So you're, so it sounds like you're kind of coming at, and I would say even Clive Barker fits, you know, and actually even Stephen King fits in this category of like, you're not a horror purist. The writers that have influenced you are kind of writers that straddle genres. It sounds like. Yeah, I think I think it's a fair thing to say. With like, I think purist is such a loaded term because mm-hmm. that's the beauty of horror is that so it plays nicely and is so interstitial that yeah, even these borderland people are horror purists, right? Like why, why can't Robert Aikman be a horror, you know, horror? I see what you're saying, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the classic position, like in terms of classic, mm-hmm. classic horror in that way is not, um, uh, yeah. I think, well, I think maybe if someone wanted, if someone was looking for something extreme or something classic, let, let's be fair, they just might be disappointed, you know, with, with someone like myself or a quiet horror story without, having any judgment on mm-hmm. uh, either way well and i should and uh, I'll clarify that i am long on the record of being anti being a purist i guess oh okay um, i didn't know that that's I'm... a thing or if that was a negative thing you know i mean hey if, you, if you're a purist like why not like love love what you love you know yeah like if you whatever your def whatever anyone's definition of purist is that's cool right like you should you should spend your time collecting and reading and loving what you love i guess as long as you're just not hurting or you know mm-hmm. Shitting well, on anyone else. <laughs> well, what I find, and you know, because I'm, I'm a obviously I'm a big music fan too. I'm, I'm, and I'm a heavy metal fan. And yeah. the most insufferable people in the world, and punk rock uh, purists are the same way. Like uh. heavy metal purists <laughs> and punk rock purists are the most insufferable. Uh, yeah, you're wearing an Allison, and for for listeners at home, he's got an Allison chain shirt on, and right. and like, uh, and they're they're unplugged. Out. And that's funny you say that because Allison chains as heavy as they were. Mm-hmm. They were like the they were the interstitial and pro not even pro they were like their own non purist way of right. even having world they they were just like you know they came out with that first album and then they're like hey acoustic or hey our own thing well, yeah, they were just they were following their own it's path, what I, no matter what you called them it's what I actually love about the quote unquote grunge era <laughs> or the yeah. grunge scene is because it was an anti scene and they were yeah. they were an anti purist movement where it was like they were like we don't even know what you mean when you say grunge because like we're all doing yeah. our own thing we're all doing different things like there was and so you have a band like Gallus and Chains which is you know yeah they're kind of metal I guess but they're yeah. just kind of. They're them. They're them. They're them. You know, Nirvana. Yeah, they're kind of punk. But I think a band that really embodies that is one of my favorites. That you may have thought of them as coming from grunge, but they've definitely transcended and lasted. Is is uh, the Smashing Pumpkins? You know, mm-hmm. they had they had that heaviness going on there, but they were just like, yeah, we're we're going places. And, right. You know, hang on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and and with you know like metal purists, because I remember this from the nineties. It's a little bit of a digression, but it's okay. Um, but <laughs> You know, like in the 
in the 90s when like you know grunge was kind of popular yeah the metal dudes were so just like turning up their nose at it because it was like they wanted the same slayer album you know yeah every year you know and even slayer when slayer like tried to like break out of their box a little bit the the fans were just not having it and i was just like why do you want the same thing over and over and so for me it's the push and pull of of creativity and of artist versus fan and in every genre and every day mm-hmm. and, and will always has been and always will be that way that mm-hmm. push and pull and so that's what when i say like you're not a horror purist i think yeah. to me that's a compliment because you thank know, the, you yeah. the problem with the horror purists is there's a lot of gatekeeping and a lot of like i hear you i hear you yeah. i'm being a little bit of devil's advocate of saying like as much as yeah like i don't i don't mind having my nose turned up at like i've had rejections or criticism of like this is a cool story but it's not horror or this mm-hmm. is not horror i'm like that's cool you know like there's no you know like if i'm on the other side of the gate i'm not so offended by that because yeah it just it, it is what it is and it's not it's not for you and mm-hmm. i'm kind of cool i'm kind of cool with that. i mean i much like it better when like people like you know hey i like <laughs> i much prefer to be liked of course but you know let's mm-hmm. face it you, you can't make me like something that i don't like no matter what name you call it Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, like even thinking about, so, so one story that I want to talk about, one of your short stories, it's in the Jewish book of horror. It's, is it, um, okay. hand yeah. of, hand of fire? Hand of fire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nice um, that you got your hands on that one. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely wanted to read that, you know, I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm working, you know, I have uh, another writer I recently talked to, Zachary Rosenberg. Yeah. Who, um, he, he's, he's very overtly like kind of marketing himself as like a Jewish. Yeah. Writer, yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I've been, I've been like working at like, I want to, I want to explore that more in my fiction. I want to explore, you know, that heritage more in my fiction. Me, me too. Me and too. so I reading think. that story, reading A Hand of Fire, it was such a, for me, you know, coming from this place of wanting to explore that. It was really powerful to me. And just talk about that story a little bit and where that came from. And like, thank you. I really, yeah. I'm really, uh, I really appreciate it. Um, Cause you know, that that's a great story that you landed on. It fits into like the, exactly what we're talking about. You know, that, that was a story I'd written quite some time ago. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, I didn't know what I was writing when I was writing that. Like, is that science fiction? I mean, okay. So it maybe has some halt. Mm-hmm. hallmarks of science fiction you know without putting a spoiler right like science fiction has x has yeah. y has z is it historical is it this is it that so like i didn't you know credit to the editor josh schlossberg for editing the the jewish book par putting it together and casting casting the wide net yeah that was simply that was that's i think a great example of the author myself talking <laughs> referring to mm-hmm. myself in the third person but yeah the author i'm using it as a tip for people out there of just to to be in your own world and not mm-hmm. be afraid to be in your own world and write what you write, even if like a lot of markets are going to be like, oh, that's too sci-fi. There's too many rocket ships for our horror. There's too much chocolate for our peanut butter. There's <laughs> too much. There's too much Jewish for our mainstream. You know, I've gotten. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to get like if you're operating on the borderland, it's a possibility you're going to get gatekeeps. But ultimately, yeah, not to be too uh, rose-colored lenses. Uh, ultimately, that you'll find yourself where you need to be or want to be on that. But um, and in this case, yeah, there are certain stories that become and I mean, become they they are simply what an editor says they are. Yeah. So if that book's mm-hmm. in the Jewish book of heart. Maybe if that book gets maybe if that story gets reprinted in the Jewish book of science fiction or maybe mm-hmm. it just gets reprinted in a different book. And it's still I I would hope that it's still 
is what it is, no matter what we're saying. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, I would encourage uh, anyone to read. I mean, I, I don't, I think it, it's got to, I've got to imagine that it's got a, a, a power to it that transcends, you know, being in the book, you know, geared towards Jewish horror, you know, like for non-Jewish readers, I think they're going to get a lot out of it too, even if they don't necessarily get, you know, some of the specific cultural references or whatnot. And it's also, it's got a, you know, it's also very like clearly got a, some inspiration from like the Terminator franchise. So yeah. You know, I I would, I will tell you, uh, I don't know if I've talked about this. Maybe I've talked about it before. My working title, <laughs> I think my working <laughs> title for the story was The Determinator. Like, I mean, yeah, th- I think I think The Determinator is maybe even playing on a screen at one point in there, like a background. Like, yeah, The Terminator, the Terminator is, is uh, such, I mean, such a great movie, such a huge influence. But yeah, mm-hmm. was definitely thinking about reactions and playing with some of the concepts we see in The Terminator in that story and we're not talking about arnold's one-liners i think there are no, no one-liners in there so don't be afraid of that do right. not be afraid of bad accent great accents. <laughs> well i thought you know and one thing you know back to the like extreme horror versus non-extreme horror you know i i read a fair amount of extreme horror some of it i think is very effective some of it is you know, not as much. And you have a death scene in that story in Hand of Fire. I don't want to spoil too much, but it's a very shocking, very sudden, basically a character oh, like yeah, walking okay. into a hotel room and okay, then yeah. something happens and the yeah. character is killed. And it is yeah. very ambiguous what happened. Yeah. It's, and yet it, I feel like in a way where like, some of the extreme horror I've read, which might have reveled much more in the like the blood and guts of the situation, would have actually pushed me away. What what you do in that particular scene is because it's confusing and it happens so quick. Yeah. And even the character, you you mentioned the character. The character is even confused. <laughs> They're confused yeah, I mean, and it's like there's just something, there's a wrongness to it. Like this is yeah. wrong. This shouldn't be happening. And then you have just a very quick line about like, and then like the pain, you know, the feeling of pain right before yeah. this person dies. Oh, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for picking up on that. Yeah. I mean, when I was focusing in on that, on, yeah, without spoiling. Yeah. The, 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 the read when things don't happen, look, tro- tropes and expectations can be used to our, our benefit. Cause like, it's a good comfort, right? Like you like it mm. when the hero wins, you know, we like it when, the killer toys with the prey, like all these things. But then, then when you have a story that like, um, you know, like pull, pulls the rug out of you, like, wait a minute, like I thought the story was going to be this, but if this mm-hmm. shit happened and we're on page five, like, <laughs> right. you know, you, yeah, yeah. Like what the fuck? Like where, where are we going? Either you're repulsed by that and you're going to close mm-hmm. the book or you're like, we're in an uncharted, we're in an uncharted zone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was something I was trying, trying to play with and with that. Well, it's just interesting because, you know, my, my interview before you, uh, the last episode was um, in Jay Gallegos and her novel, The Broken Heart is much more sort of towards the splatterpunk direction. It's very well written and she's got some death scenes towards the end of the book that are very visceral, very gory, but very unnerving, very, you know, because they're really immersive. Mm-hmm. Her her way of writing is she's just so immersive as a writer. And then with the death scene in this story, in Hand of Fire, it's, like I said, it's so quick and confusing mm. and give us just enough and then we're like, yeah. move out of it. And it was no less unnerving to me. 
than mm-hmm. than what NJ was doing in her. So it's just oh, really thanks. interesting to me. It's always fascinating to me to see like the different approaches you can take and how effective they both can be if they're well done, if if the writing is good and and we're invested in the characters and yeah, I think um, I think you hit on it. Yeah, I mean you got it on all the, on all those things. Yeah, yeah, I I really love that story. And then the other one I want to mention it's it's thank you the one that I was saying is and I got to look up the title. Give me just a sure. Second uh because it was a long title um, all right is it was it a, a girl's guide it is it's it's from uh underworld dreams oh okay and it is how to stay afloat when drowned. oh okay thank you so it's the first story in that collection thanks talk about that one a little bit i don't want to say too much it's a very strange story thank you you know it's interesting like i think trying to think of how to even sum it up. I mean, I guess you would say it's about a young guy who has returned to his hometown to help his sister, essentially, <laughs> with their parents. Yeah, so off. I mean, that's the that's what's happening on on the surface. On the surface. On the surface it, and then, yeah, yeah, on the surface. Right. It's, um, yeah, someone is, yeah, is trying to do something in the real world. And like what happens in the real world, they, they have a strange encounter that may mm-hmm. or may not be uh, supernatural. So when you don't, when you don't define these things, when you're like, all right, this definitely is not a vampire. This mm-hmm. definitely is not a werewolf. So let's dispense with silver bullets and we don't have to mm-hmm. worry about cutting off heads. It doesn't become about we must defeat the supernatural. You know, it becomes about, well, what does it mean? What is what does it mean or not mean to these characters? It's not about figuring out the mystery. I mean, there's so there are similarities and differences between hand fire and how to stay afloat when drowning. Both of them do perhaps have unexpected deaths in them, mm. which we won't get to. They, yeah, they do. Yeah. I think I was more mature of a writer when writing how to stay afloat when drowning because um, eventually the mysteries and what I, some of the unorthodox elements in Hands of Fire are. And so maybe right. the fun of it is going through and being like, wow, that wasn't what I thought. Oh, it wasn't this. Oh, it wasn't this. But it does have a resolution. But, but it does have a resolution. And after my learning and, and after many years as a writer, after learning about Aikman from Peter Straub and other places, I had the self-confidence to write a story like How to Stay Afloat When Drowning, which was like the impulse to, oh, for this to be published, for this to be accepted, for this to be liked, we must have a resolution and an explanation where I'm like, no, that does not delight me. You can, mm-hmm. I, most of the stories in Underworld Dreams, if I did my quote unquote job right to people could look at the same story like a worst plot and both be right. You could be like, oh my God, this mm-hmm. is a story about this. No, 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 no. This is a story about this. And right, and I love, you know, yeah. movies or things where you can do that and, and have that fun. So that that is really, uh, if I did my job right, that's the joy of how to stay afloat when drowning. And uh, like Scotty said, it's in it's in Underworld Dreams from Lev Press. But if you collect Alan Datlow's books, it also it was reprinted in Alan Datlow's Best Horror of the Year. Wow, now I forgot the number. <laughs> the, 2000, <laughs> the 2019 one. But yeah, so you can find it there if you wanted to well, just that... have a try without picking up a full book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what I love, it's so, like I said, it's got the setup where on the most surface level, it's it's guy returns to his hometown in Long Island to help his sister <laughs> yeah. with their parents' surf shop. Right. And he has a strange encounter in a bar. And, yeah. And in that sense, you could say it's very Twilight Zone. And then it just, but it's what I really thought was effective about that story was that there's these disc, you know, we're looking at elements of his history, these traumatic things that he went through when he was younger that seem disconnected. He has these memories of things that have happened, everything from watching a shark get caught, 
you know. Yeah. Oh, and, I like that you so, said that seem disconnected. And like, why I, well, I don't mean that they're connected. Perhaps that's that's the trick. Not that there are any tricks, but yeah, mm-hmm. like in these kind of like in the Aikman, the Aikman type story, or maybe these other Twilight Zone stories, or I haven't read yours yet, but yeah, there we present these elements that seem disconnected, but it's the reader that fills in the, that connects those dots. Exactly. Or, or not. If they if not, if it doesn't the story falls flat, it falls flat. It falls flat. You're like, what the fuck? You know, well, I've had that reaction too. But if 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 for some reason it works for you, these seemingly disconnected elements. They connect with you. It's what I call nighttime logic. I don't. Mm-hmm. It's a term I borrow. A term I borrowed from other writers, but that's the I've nighttime heard that logic. Before, of, yeah. That's the nighttime logic of the story. Uh, Kelly Link uses it. How Howard Waldrop uses it. Maybe coins it. It's uh, yeah. That's the the nighttime logic of the story. And I think that's something I definitely try to do in, in a lot of my own work as well. And I thought you did it so well in that story because even though all these events, you in there's something about the story you could say it's just very episodic, and yet it all felt like it was moving towards Mm. something. You just felt the sense of dread building. And even if things are not literally connected, there's like a spiritual connection between all these events that we see eventually kind of pay off. Oh, it's fantastic. You're just describing nighttime logic to me. And I'm just like, the the reader, the listeners can't see me smiling and like rubbing my hands. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's a really excellent story. And, and, And I felt like it was one of the stories, like I said, where I, felt like like okay we're we're coming out of we're maybe the, from slightly different side, angles yeah. but we're trying to do some similar things I we're think. after that same that same slippery creature mm-hmm. we're looking for to capture right. that same thing yeah <laughs> yeah that same tentacle deep water creature we're looking for <laughs> <laughs> and and it is interesting you know you talk about the robert aikman influence yeah and you know, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that it wouldn't have been obvious to me until you mentioned it. But now that I think about it, yeah, it's because very Aikman's clearly t- Aikman's there. tone. Aikman and perhaps myself, and perhaps you, and perhaps each of us, we're all ourselves. We're all unique. We all have our own voice. But perhaps the similarity that I'm mentioning is like about Aikman is is that intentional ambiguity. While Aikman <laughs> is about the nostalgia and the British and the stiff upper lip and all that stuff. And my stuff doesn't even come close to having the tone of that. But where I hope or I, where Aikman has taught me or maybe other writers who follow his lineage of the um, the story, it doesn't have to be explained. Right. You know, well, and, and it's, uh, that's the element. I think, and I think one through line in, in, in your work that I've read, and, and I would say to someone like Aikman, is the exploration of the uncanny, is the idea mm. of things being... The horror of something being just a little bit off, you mm. know, something, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's the idea, you know, because the, the whole idea of the uncanny is the strangely familiar. It's something that is familiar that suddenly feels like, yeah, so we're back to the Twilight just Zone, a little. Right. we're right back to the Twilight Zone, which was coming exactly Amer- in the 1950s America, you know, that was prime time, you know, and then somehow it went away and, right. you know, maybe it's back again, at least it's back in the conversation, you know, with, uh, mm-hmm. With A24 films, perhaps, is maybe bringing it back closer and closer to the conversation. Yeah. And one thing, like, you've mentioned the idea, like, of, you know, either writing for the idea of, like, I need to write, fit, kind of fit into a box to get published or not, you know, or or, or kind of trust my own instinct and kind of let the chips fall where they may. What I found is that the times I have really gotten in my own way and have tried to be like, okay, I need to write this type of story for this time 
type of market. I had this, you know, I worked in the movie industry for a long time as a screenwriter, and this was just my life as a screenwriter. It's like, okay, I need to fit in this box, you know. Mm-hmm. But even when I've done that with the with the short fiction, um, I've I've slipped into that a couple times with short stories, and it never works out. And and the stories I think like I've written where I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this is. I don't know where the fuck I can publish this. You Those have ended up find... being some of my more popular stories that I've got. Yeah, out, the ones that you, you know? somehow get. And it, that what you've just described is every every writer's cliche coming true. Like, I don't know if I mm-hmm. want to fire them off, but that every writer's cliche we can think of is what you just said there. It's like, yeah, when you when you really do that, those are the places where my, my reaction has been the similar, yeah, where I've trusted myself or just gone what the fuck and just, just done it. Those are the ones where people say, hey, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, just saying right on to that. I, I, I feel you on that for sure. So let's let's go ahead and talk about the Serpent Shadow. Cause, cool. So I, I'm, a, I'm I guess I'm a little confused because there's uh, it's coming out. Is it being re-released? Because it looked like there was a yeah. version that was out before. Yeah, it, it okay. was acquired for Cemetery Dance eBooks, and it came out in 2019 on the eBook line. Okay. And at that point, at that point, the eBook line was just the eBook line. So yeah, so it was just an eBook. And then not long after that, with the pandemic and the, the Cemetery Dance formed a trade paperback line, which they never had before, and they merged mm-hmm. it with the eBook line uh, that's headed up by Kevin Lucia. So right. now okay. uh, it was acquired. They acquired the print rights. So it's just being reissued, but basically all that means is, um, yeah, there's a, a newer, a newer updated ebook, you know, which isn't isn't the, the text of the story isn't changed, but yeah, it's coming out in paper for those okay, of us who so like we'll, paper, just coming out in paper for the first time. So, so people can get an actual physical copy. So yeah, if you want to read this story, right? Well, I mean, this is probably airing only a couple of days before the <laughs> release date, but. If people are somehow eavesdropping on us, you could sneak a copy uh, of that ebook. You could grab that ebook right now. <laughs> well, one thing I'm, I I will say this is a little bit of an aside, um, but I'm definitely going to order. Even though I read, you know, you sent me the ebook to read, but looking at the the cover art, I'm like, I want that on my bookshelf. Yeah, so I'm Lynn definitely going to be ordering a paperback. <laughs> Let's have a shout out to uh, Lynn Hansen. Uh, it's yeah. um, Lynn Hansen. Uh, she does a lot of great work for Cemetery Dance and and other publishers. And let's. Um, I love art and I love celebrating the artists. So mm-hmm. um, I'm fortunate that Cemetery Dance has, has done two great covers for me so far. Uh, yeah, the Lynn Hansen art on the Serpent Shadow, and I just want to have a shout out to Dan Sauer. Uh, who did the art for the Night Marchers and other Strange Tales? Another mm. really fantastic yeah. piece of art. And and I just want to second what you said about Lynn Hansen. She's I'm actually going to try and I'll be trying to get her on the podcast here. Uh, All right, cool. Yeah, I've talked to her about it. She's she's agreed to come on. I just need to get get her she's on. Get that logistics going on. Cool. Yeah, but she's uh, she's she's really fantastic. She's one of the best. I think one of the just hands down the best artists working. In the yeah, she right she knows. Yeah, she's a great artist and a whole lot more. She's just super. Mm. She's just super brilliant, super talented. She's a filmmaker too. I mean, mm-hmm. Lynn is, to, yeah. Talk about just talk about the talent that's going on there and multidiscipline. So yeah, definitely a huge yeah. shout out to Lynn Hansen. But let's just kind of dive into the book itself. So give us just kind of the setup. What well, what is the the thumbnail pitch for the story of Serpent Shadow? Yeah. So the thumbnail pitch would be. I'll give you the pitch before the pitch because we <laughs> okay. we were talking about. When we were talking about movies, uh, like we were like, you're like, hey, pick a movie. And one of the ones I threw at you was It Follows. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about It 
follows. One of the things I love about stories in movies are the story that seems like it's going to be one kind of a story, but as you go down that garden path, it's something else. So the mm-hmm. Serpent Shadow, the Serpent Shadow is one of those kind of stories. Yeah. The pitch that I'm going to give you or just tell tell the listeners is is really not is more than it meets the eye. So when you could pitch it and saying like, yeah, this is it's an 80s horror. It's got kids in peril it's got young kids Mm -hmm. just wanting to party and have fun and they get in a little bit you know they're playing with something they shouldn't they get a little bit more than they bargained for in the context of 1980s cancun Mm -hmm. mexico there's a guy and a girl and it's a star-crossed love and jungle and mayan ruins and then it turns out they're really just kind of stepping on, without knowing it, a war between Mayans and Mexicans who are just sort of vying for the future of Mexico about what what's Mexico going to be? Is mm-hmm. it going to be a city? Is it going to be a jungle? Is it going to be this or is it going to be that? And then the way they're thinking of doing that is they're messing, there's the cosmic car. Mm-hmm. They're messing with power, you know, right. and right. shit that you're like, what the fuck? You know, they're messing with power. And yeah, that's the quick thing. So, I mean, it's essentially, we've got the character of David. He's kind of our lead. Yeah. He's on a family vacation in Cancun, and uh, he's out partying with his sister, and he meets a girl. Yeah. And and that's kind of our setup, and then things kind of, you know, so there's a lot of mystery. Who is this <laughs> things girl? Things progress. Things happen. Shit happens. Shit <laughs> happens. And and yeah. it really does get into, you get into Mayan mythology, you get into yeah. Saint Death, or, or what is it? Yeah, uh, Santa Muerte, Saint Death. Yeah. Yeah, so that's like another, right, so that's another, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's another thing happening in the background that moves to the foreground. They're like, be careful, kids. Like, when you're partying, there's murders happening. <laughs> you know, I like guess as a New Yorker, right? Like, you're like, yeah, when you're partying, like, don't, yeah, don't get murdered. You know, right. I guess, you know. <laughs> Don't get murdered. And, you know, and, and, and St. Death is that Mexican patron saint folk here. And, like, is uh, she sort of has that Robin Hood kind of quality about her, of you know, the, the patron saint of, of, mm-hmm. of uh, and they're using her as a rebellious figure here. So a lot of people are like, yeah, like the white lady, Santa Muerte's come and this has come, come to save us all, you know, like from, from the outside. Well, what's, what's really interesting, uh, I really want to, I'm going to try and be as circumspect as possible because okay. I really don't want to spoil this story. All right. All right. Like I said, you, know, you got this set up, boy meets girl in Cancun. And then, yeah. <laughs> um, and then it goes from there. But when you get into this, this, this conflict between, you know, the, the white lady and then the people who are trying to stop her. Yeah. I was really taken by how I was not sure whose side I was on. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, yeah i mean so I'm really obviously glad, really glad you said that because there's uh there's horrible things being committed by one side but it's the side i kind of agreed with you know in terms of what they wanted yeah and i thought that was a really interesting and, because that's that's the way life is you know that's the way mm-hmm. life is maybe our views change maybe in life there is no right or wrong maybe it's just what you want and and Look, in some times there is right or wrong. Don't do not get me wrong. You know, there's mm-hmm. human, human dignity, and you know, the, it, it, yeah. In our, in our modern politics, there's some that that term has been misused, and I do not stand for that. You know, like I, I stand for human dignity and equality, one hundred percent. But taking that off the table, right? In certain things like development, maybe there is no right and wrong. And case in point, right? When I was a kid and I went down there, so I saw two things that I saw in stark opposition was this amazing natural beauty of the Yucatan. Mm-hmm. But I also saw this heart-stopping poverty that was just the, mo- the, the most horrible thing I could ever think of. So sure. 
So as an outsider, I was imbued with the values of, wow, the natural world is beautiful and special and in need of being protected. But what if that means that like, you know, people are going to die, you know? So like when I came back there, Mm -hmm. I saw, I saw this beauty being, I, I saw the bulldozers. I smelled the smoke, you know, I felt the horror of that. But as the years and decades went by and I kept coming back, places I saw that were of hard stopping poverty because of this development, and there has been relief. And those mm. are that's just one small bit of the opposition that I think Scotty may be talking about or um, a bit there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what what was because, you know, you have David is kind of seduced by this idea of like protecting the jungle. You know, the, this is the correct way to live. This is the the true Mexico, the true Mayan way. But then there's there's another perspective, which is like yeah. the people who are living that lifestyle are the people who are living this backbreaking poverty. And they're looking at the city and saying like, no, we want we want the choice. We want the opportunity yeah. that the city provides, even though it is this garish colonial yeah. tourist <laughs> nightmare. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a really like you get into some really interesting complexity. There are hard, there are hard choices and there are things in up and start there. There are juxtapositions in opposition. There are things there's a, yeah, it's hard to say what's right and wrong all the way up until yeah, the way up, all the way up until the end there. They, and mm-hmm. then, so maybe you don't even get it. So I'm glad that you were like, I'm not sure which way I fall on this. Mm-hmm. And, it makes me feel good that some you know, we're just meeting tonight that I'm like, yeah, I don't I didn't pay you and I don't know you. And like you're like and you're like, uh, yeah, you went you went the way that I wanted or wanted mm-hmm. the reactions to be. So I really yeah. appreciate that. So I you know, I don't want to do the the uh typical like where do you get your ideas kind of question, but I'm really curious, like where where was the spark for this story? Cause it is, you know, it's it's very it's very specifically about this very specific place, this specific experience. Like what was it that kind of led to this? The earliest spark that I could think of was before I even thought of myself as a writer and it was just being a youngster and being there and was being amazed by some of the natural and the mind features, such as like the white roads, the, the sock bay. Mm-hmm. And just being in Mexico as a kid and thinking about people walking and just people mm-hmm. about me walking in Mexico as a youngster and also seeing people walking. And so these white roads are just, the, you know, the great Mayan cities that we see in the the tourist things, they they had these roads that connected them. Like we have roads and they were painted white. They were called white roads, Sock Bay in Mayan. Mm-hmm. And that had to be the first, perhaps, you know, that was the proto idea of a story. That that aspect becomes a, a big element in the story that's spoilers. Mm-hmm. But that was probably the first, the first inspiration that as I grew older and started, you know, mining tales for stories and then being compelled to write a story, that's uh that became something. And and how did you so obviously you you're not Mayan. Um no. Oh no! Like I, I found just reading the book, you very clearly spent a lot of time really thinking about how to approach telling the story. Yeah, that's true. As, you know, from an outsider's perspective, how how I mean, how did you think about that? Because let's let's talk let's talk about that because you know, like one of my not one of my favorites, hands down, unequivocal, my favorite short story of all time, my favorite story of all time is the Jaguar Hunter by Lucius Shepard. Mm, so there's a lot yeah. of things we could say about that, but what I will say about that is that story was published in the early eighties, mm-hmm. and it was published. The point of view and the character is of a uh, a Mexican, a Mayan character. And that one of the amazing things that Lucius Shepard does or did, he and he did that in a time 
where that was not being done. So like, what? Mm-hmm. But even even taking it even taking it out of its context, I, I made the decision to tell the story as an outsider because that was simply that was simply where the emotional truth mm-hmm. for me resided. And let's face it, probably and probably was just an easier job, you know, because I could even though the character of David is very different than myself, I felt like I could I could I could tell the story without having the other complexity of telling it perhaps from another, there are a lot of other different powerful characters in there. Mm-hmm. So, and I can get that balance of different sides. If you have someone who's young and in that time of life, they're, are they swaying left? Are they swaying right? Are they swaying Mexican? Are they swaying Mayan? It felt, he felt like a pendulum character where I could achieve some mm-hmm. of the stuff in play in, in the story. Well, and I thought, you know, because the the fact, you know, David is is Jewish. Yeah. And his father was uh, essentially a refugee after the Holocaust. And and basically, you know, David's, a big chunk of David's family perished in the Holocaust, which as like Jewish people, I mean, that's something we all kind of relate to. And I thought the way you're able to use that as an entryway to his understanding of what these other characters were dealing with. I didn't think, I didn't know the term Jewish horror. I don't, I didn't know that when I was writing, but it became clear that this was David's truth. And when, Mm -hmm. when more, when this, and that happened, those revelations or those explorations happen, you know, when the shit is really hitting the fan, those, those things really come into play. Mm -hmm. And when he's really put to the test, that's where I think the reader gets that information and and the stakes and the consequences and it was like an unintentional happy a happy thing in such a dark thing but i don't believe in being heavy-handed or or preaching uh you know when, when it comes to theme or when it comes to, oh what do you want this mm-hmm. to bring but one of but one of the subtle things or one of the things that maybe a reader can come out of the story with is is certain some universal things you know or you know mm-hmm. The universal connections between persecuted people or not even persecuted people the universe the universal things of loss and longing, and that was that was the way in. That was the way. Yeah, that was the way into it for David. It was it was that sense of loss, and I think you know it's it's something, and it's something I've been and I talked about uh, Zachary Rosenberg about this a bit on our episode. You know, it's I think in the in the post Trump era with this rise of anti semitism that we've seen in yeah. the country, it's made my own sense of my Jewish identity more important to me. Yeah, same here. Where I think I took it kind of for granted for a long time, and it's made me like look at the family history. And, and kind of realizing like how lucky I am to be here <laughs> because of what has been done to you know my forebears throughout Europe, you know, both by the Nazis and by the Russians. And so that kind of connection, being able to use that to connect to this very distinct and specific experience of the Mayan people. It was unexpected to me when I came across it and still unexpected. I'm glad that it's there. And I'm glad that you said what you just said there, because it's something that is still kind of pretty hard for me to talk about, but I'm getting better at it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a person that grew up, um, yeah, with not, <laughs> yeah, maybe not being aware of or caring so much about my Jewish identity, but unless only upon when it was forced upon me mm-hmm. and when it was forced upon me, like I, I, without going into it that, yeah, I was, I was picked out, bullied, singled upon, beat up, you know, all, all, mm-hmm. all the stuff. My, my Jewish identity was only, brought upon me because from from the other side and and in the negative way and i think the only answer to that and it's for all people who are persecuted and uh um, discriminated against is to be humanized Mm -hmm. and right right now for whatever reason without pointing fingers or laying blame 
Um, and and, and it, this yeah, sort of like comes back to the hand of fire when we're talking about these two stories is it's more important to me, Jewish people and the Jewish experience to just be humanized warts, warts and all for the good, for the bad. And just to sure. be just to, yeah. And uh, yeah, right now that seems like that's maybe at a low at a low point. And, you know, maybe writers like yourself or Zach or, you know, Josh, Josh Lasford's projects have, you know, have an, something. It's got to be fun and it's got to entertain before it can educate and do that. So, yeah. But once it does that, like, uh, yeah, it's become more important for me for the rest of the package. Well, and what you just said, I mean, it's definitely uh, that has been my experience, too, because, you know, I'm from New Mexico. I grew up in a town where there weren't a lot of I mean, I wasn't the only Jewish kid, but there were not very many of us. My family's not religious, so I didn't have a lot of that kind of connection yeah. to it. But so my connection you know my um my sense of identification with being jewish was about being very aware of being the yeah, other being, being the outsider yeah. being different yeah. and all the bullying and everything that, that kind of entailed so so we have a lot so we have a lot in common more so than being uh, more so than mm-hmm. our love of fiction <laughs> yeah well, and it's, you know, and it's, you know, my best friend who I do my other podcast with, she's, uh, her family's Bolivian and they're first generation Bolivian immigrants. And she's had similar kind of experiences of being othered. And we, we spend a lot of time talking about this idea of, you know, kind of cultural trauma, you know, and like the cultural memory that, that you bring, no matter who you are, you know, you're bringing this trauma from gen- or generational trauma forward, you know, and, and I, I thought the way that you use that as a bridge to this other kind of generational trauma that's happening in Mexico was just really, it was very smart and very nuanced. And thank you. Like, like you said, not heavy hand. I, I don't want to, I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's not heavy handed. Yeah. It's a very entertaining book and it's a very, it's a very spooky. But re- realities are there. Mm-hmm. They're there if you go to Cancun, if you just scratch the surface. And you can also, they're there in the Serpent Shadow of the book if you want them to, right? Like you could mm-hmm. read this book and maybe not really dive into those that, that aspect of it and be like, oh, I'm into it because of this, that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, it, it's there if you want to pick it up. And it's also, yeah, not, yeah. Um, you can have fun with the book without, it's not necessarily a book about that, but it's there. Yeah, it's it's all like all the stuff we're talking about here is it's like it's it's the it's the underlying subtext. But then you've got these like really quite frightening sequences. And again, mm-hmm. I, I do not want to spoil anything, but there's a ritual that happens about halfway through the book where we're, when we really yeah. realize shit is about to go sideways. Yeah. So, yeah, you could I mean, you could say you, <laughs> I wanted to so when, when you were discovering the book, like so I could repitch the book. It's like boy, boy meets girl, you know, girl meets boy. Boy and girl think they might meet a giant flying snake. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But just like the imagery of that whole sequence was so rich, I thought. It it really kind of stuck with me. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a great, a great experience as a writer to, um, yeah, maybe I don't, in, in my short work, I like, I don't richly go into the gore in that sort of rendering, but you know, in terms of the jungle, in terms of the setting, in terms of like sequences like that, mm-hmm. I do. It's just enjoyable to to render them that way, and, well, and hopefully, and hopefully, it's a visual experience for the reader as well. And I would, I would definitely say, like of of everything of yours I've read, one thing you do very well is you create a sense of place. Because I felt like when you're in the jungle and the serpent shadow, you feel the jungle. When you're yeah in the kind of windswept Long Island beach area of. <laughs> <laughs> you know like or or in uh israel 
in uh, Hand of Fire. Each location feels very, like, I just feel like, feels very lived in. Thank you. Does, just So you've been, obviously, you've been to Cancun. Like, it seems like one thing you do like to explore in your writing is just kind of different pockets of the world how much traveling have you do you do or is it or, or do you do like research from kind of more from afar both you know like maybe one of the earliest like when you're when you're a baby writer and you're starting out and you know and you take the first compliments you you have when someone says something good about your writing in in a sea of constructive criticism which is necessary mm-hmm. to grow but there are some parts of the world that i mean that i would write about that i had ne- never been to and still have not and there was one point where i i uh, had gotten some feedback from some people and they were like when they met me they're like oh i didn't i did not think you were who you were i thought you were they thought i was a completely different race and ethnicity because mm-hmm. i had a story set in a different part of the world mm-hmm. and they're like, oh wow! Like we really thought you were you were gonna be like your character and and like that rendering. And I was like, wow, oh okay, like that that worked. I mean, it was super fun for me to do that. And and my influences, you know, both Tanith Lee and Lucia Shepard do that in their fiction. And that's mm-hmm. my and my experience as a reader. Like, yeah, I want to I want to go to those places that Lucia Shepard's fiction takes us and. I want to go to those places in Tanith Lee that don't even exist in these other dimensions. Yeah. But right. um, yeah, so like, you know, that's why uh, perhaps that's the part of writing that initially was uh, the greatest joy for me was um, the, the rendering or exploration of setting. Well, I want to just very quickly. So I, like you said, I had asked you to kind of name a movie. <laughs> yeah. And you, 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 you gave me a couple options. We talked about the Neon Demon. Uh, it follows what you mentioned. But you also mentioned the movie Q. And just as a contrast to the serpent, uh, the serpent shadow in terms of a way, you know, to deal with Mayan and Mexican mythology, <laughs> the very distinct ways to approach that subject matter. What was it about? So the movie Q, just for people who, who maybe haven't seen it, it's a Larry Cohen film from 80 the, something, early 80s. I, it's like 82, 83. Yeah, 81, like 82, 83, early 80s, uh, stop um, motion, sort of gritty, uh, it's like, yeah, it's a, as if there's a hello, enter, story starts, and there's a giant Quetzalcoatl winged serpent flying around the top of New York City <laughs> you know, in all its grittiness. And Michael Moriarty is like a small time crook trying to cash in. He finds the secret nest in the Chrysler building, <laughs> and he's having like a cat mouse game with the cops, you know, trying to kind of extort the cops to, uh, yeah, to, uh, to do it. And, you know, when I rewatched it and I was like, oh my God. At first, I kind of thought it was a joke or I'm like, it was a joke that I mentioned it to you. But I'm like, I just realized how much my subconscious may or may not have been influenced by this movie. Because I'm like, on the one hand, right, it's a totally different rendering. And mm-hmm. I'm using subtle brushstrokes and they're using glor- glorious, uh, glorious, glorious B-movie glorious, glorious bold strokes. Right. But in the same, in one way, I like see the similarities. Like I see, like you know, Moriarty, the robbers and the cops. There's no good guy mm-hmm. or bad guy. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like what the cops want. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want the co- I, I want the cops to win. But then, like, even in the asshole, tough mouth, uh, nihilistic Michael Moriarty character, like sometimes I like, like, wait a minute, but some of the stuff he's saying is making sense too. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have the serpent itself, and uh, you know, it's neither good nor bad. It's just trying to, you know, it's just trying it's, to trying to exist. Yeah. So exactly. like, so like in very those very bold in those very simplistic terms, like that is shared with the serpent shadow. There's one side, there's another side, and then there's a force of nature. And mm-hmm. what, what, which side do you identify with? And neither of those three sides are necessarily moralistically good or bad. 
mm-hmm. in that way, I proudly can say I share I share a thread with well, uh I share a thread with Q. And there's one other way I'll let you comment, and then there's one other point about Q that I gotta make before we go. Well, I was gonna say, like it's what's in, interesting, and again, not wanting to spoil anything with the trip and shadow, but one of the most powerful elements that comes towards the end of the book is this idea, you know, you're you're dealing with the the Katsukado myth kind of in your own way in the serpent shadow but there's an idea that is introduced late in the game that quetzalcoatl you know the feathered serpent this god this mayan god which is being you know potentially summoned being brought into the world maybe like just wants to be left alone yeah and like that seemed like i was definitely thinking about that at the end of q when when like q is just like coming back to his lair and all of a sudden there's all these cops shooting at him also the Tommy yeah. guns and stuff. And I thought that was a wholly original thought of mine. I was so proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, what what if the monster what if Godzilla just wants to smash cities and, and have peacefully into the ocean again? Like, you know, like what <laughs> like what you know, I, I thought this was such an original idea of mine. But then like as I'm watching Q again, I'm like, wait a minute, yeah, maybe that wasn't an original idea of mine. Like that idea mm-hmm. was planted. Like I watched you as a kid, so like I that idea came from somewhere. And what I one of the things I love, I can spoil Q. One of the things that in the beginning of Q, when they're they're trying to orient the viewer, the cops are trying to brainstorm what's happening. They're like, "Is it a bird? Maybe it's an extinct bird." And like <laughs> the cops are arguing, they're like, "No, you know what? It might be a bird, but it was wished back into existence, or it was prayed mm-hmm. back. It was prayed back." David uh, Carradine's yeah. character, says and that, that was yeah. Carradine says that, and it's just a throwaway line. That's all it's ever mentioned to it, and that's like the whole point of this urban shadow. But that throwaway line, I'm like, mm-hmm. that's where like where um, there is that cosmic horror element to Q, where it's like, oh, whoa, this is like a B movie thing happening, but yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't extinct. It wasn't hiding. There was there was cosmic horror or magic that yeah they, whereas they, in the serpent shadow that's a lot more overt and rendered right I mean and it's but but it is but you're right it, it is that is a through line between the two because <laughs> you know a Q is not just a kaiju you know like, no it's not and maybe I should have never said this because I always want to be like <laughs> yes I'm brilliant I thought of these brilliant ideas I'm like no you know what actually the serpent shadow is just a retelling of the b-movie q i just gotta i just gotta call it like i see it like some days i thought it was this original thing and i wrote this great story now i'm like i just fucking retold the b-movie man that's all i did well but what's but what's great is i do love how i had a a similar revelation a, a little bit of an aside but i have i have a novel that i finished that is a mess i need to like go and uh do a whole bunch of editing but i have this like race of kind of evil demon character you know the way i describe them you know they're they're these kind of cannibalistic demons they have blue skin they're um you know it's like i was thinking of them as like they're almost like like from like a clive barker novel or something you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um like the night breed or something yeah but i realized my inspiration for them comes from an old episode of the smurfs um Which I think, which I think I might have talked to. I think I'm, um, me and Rebecca were maybe talking about it on uh, my other podcast. But it's called the Purple Smurfs, and it's about uh, it's basically Night of the Living Dead, but with the Smurfs. Wow! And it gave me recurring nightmares all the way into college. I didn't even realize it was an actual episode. I thought it was something I imagined. Whoa! But then I realized that my my evil like cannibalistic demons in this novel are basically taken from the Purple Smurfs. So it's like 
I actually think it's a beautiful thing the way like our mind will synthesize something that we experienced as a kid and turn it into something new. Because I don't think you could read the Serpent Shadow and and say like, oh, this is like clearly taken from (laughs) this Larry Cohen B movie. I hope not, but it's it's a fun game to play with. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but I I think like back to the movie. Like one thing that always strikes me about Larry Cohen films is you know because he did It's Alive, he did that. uh, What was the movie? I think it's like God Told Me to the The stuff. stuff. He did the stuff. You know, he did these. You know, very much known for these B movies, but they're always just like a little bit better than they really yeah should be they're a little better written they're more they're wittier yeah. they're more clever the acting is better the characters are more interesting yeah as a kid i i, I remember being granted permission to see q and i probably expect i remember being really disappointed with it because i probably wanted a godzilla movie but i didn't get it and as an adult, like especially revisiting it this week for our conversation, at the very least, I loved it as just sort of like a gritty kind of time capsule of New York in that yeah. time. Yeah. And just sort of a, and as a, you know, as a, a broad stroke sort of cop. And I, I tend to not get cop movies sort of rub me the wrong way. But this was just, yeah, it was like B-movie cops in like early 80s. New York, and that just yeah. if nothing else. If, even if everything else sucked, that made me happy on just like on a fun level. Well, and I and I gotta say, like Michael, Mor- and for anyone who doesn't know who Michael Moriarty is, if you and this is probably dating myself a little bit, but if you've ever seen the original Law and Order back in the like early '90s, he was before Sam Waterston came onto Law and Order. Uh, Michael Moriarty was like the DA character, and that's what I remember him from as Law and Order. Uh, I never saw name. that. I, can't, I have a hard time seeing him anything other than a crook because he looms large he looms large as uh as, as the bad guy in two. you should go back and watch just like one or two like season one or season two episodes of law and order just to see his character because he's so the I like think it'll fuck me up man yeah, the, the buttoned up like you know assistant <laughs> district attorney in q you know he plays like such a scuzzbag and he is so good. Like, yeah. I for, I forgot how good his performance is in that movie. It's been oh, a while yeah. since I'd seen I it. Knew, I knew it was good, but it, uh, it, it always surprises me when, when you're there. What, what Maybe it was, I'm a little bit worried with myself because I always thought he was just a scumbag and asshole. But, like, as I was watching <laughs> it this time around, I was like, I was getting more sympathetic to him. I mean, no, he's... You know, he was like, why Why does everyone else have to profit? Like, maybe his his arguments and his theories that seemed so wild decades ago maybe are like this dark reality that we're living in here. Um, mm-hmm. the, the stuff that seems so oddball for him to say is maybe kind of like some dark realities that have come to pass about, you know, pr- pr- profiting, profiting from death and destruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and he is... I mean, he that that's because uh, Michael Moretti is such a good actor that yeah. like he is he is he sold that shit that would have he sold that shit. in lesser in lesser hands because because he is oddly you know he's essentially trying to blackmail the police into giving yeah. him a million dollars before he tells yeah. them where they can find the the yeah. bird monster. Oh, the whole thing is ridiculous. But like, but if you but if you but if you know you uh, if you if you jump if, yeah if you suspend disbelief you get into it. He's clearly like that one million dollars. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but he's so he just he commit he commits to the over the topness of the character somehow yeah. manages to ground him where he actually feels yeah. like you feel some real like pathos for this character that really yeah is just more complex than this b yeah. movie really deserves you know? yeah and he's playing opposite david carradine and like there is 
if there's nothing else in that movie, there's those two <laughs> performances going on there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you gotta love you gotta love the stop motion. Like yeah. early 80s stop motion yeah. uh, monster. That effects. was my surprise, like you know, and and what disappointed me as a kid, uh, you know, the lack of the men in rubber suits, maybe you could see it's more there were a lot more wiser choices of being ju- judicious about what they showed. A lot of cutting away, a lot of shadows, kind of on that was, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not, it's not as shitty as I thought it was. Gonna be. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's, there's some like oddly effective moment. I mean, there's, there's a lot of like monster POV stuff that's like, you know, yeah, aerial yeah. above the city, and something about it's on a very wide angle lens. It's very yeah. high, where you really do feel like you're in this alien perspective of the city. Yeah, and it has its own logic to it. Like Carradine sold the lines when they're trying to figure out what the monster is. And they're just like, well, maybe they're like, and everyone's like, it, people say the obvious, like, how could a giant fucking serpent be flying around New York and no one sees it? Mm-hmm. And then he, and Carradine says, well, maybe it just knows to angle itself. So you're always looking at the sun. I thought and that was great. And, and you've seen that you 20 minutes earlier, they, without telegraphing it, they did that. So it was a, mm-hmm. it was a nice little bit of writing. Right. That felt that felt good when that that line came to pass. And one moment in the movie that I think is genuinely disturbing is after after the monster eats the naked girl on the roof. <laughs> you see all these people down on the street. They're looking up, and the blood just starts to fall from the sky. Yeah, yeah. I think that's in the that's in the yeah. That's mm-hmm. uh, in the in the setup before we know anything of it. You know, it's it's just like yeah. That was uh, it ha- yeah. It had. <laughs> It has its charms. The movie yeah. has its charms. Yeah, it's it's you know it is what it is. It's it's a B movie for sure. But yeah. it it is like and it's the way I feel. Like I said about most of Larry Cohen's stuff is it's just it's like ten to fifteen percent better than you expect it to be. You know? Yeah, um, I I would recommend it. I I had a yeah. good time watching it. <laughs> it plays nicely with the serpent shadow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't. I know it's like almost midnight your time, so I want to let you go. But remind us when is the Serpent Shadow coming out? It's coming out from Cemetery Dance Books. It's coming out from Cemetery Dance Books on September twelfth, and the time of this airing, that's only a, not very far away. So you can get it at the time you're listening to this. Just go over to Cemetery Dance and just order it there, or, or ask for it from your favorite local bookseller and support mm-hmm. that, or your favorite giant mega online bookseller as well. It's yeah. there. It's it's there. I'm waiting for you to be had right now. And what and what else are you working on? What what do you got anything else coming out in the future? Yeah, I got I got got some things coming out. I have uh some short stories that are gonna be uh that are gonna be appearing. And also you can find my my short story collections, uh the one Scotty and I were talking to that we were talking about were the night marchers and other strange tales that's also can be found from Cemetery Dance and Underworld Dreams from Lev Press, which uh mm-hmm. which uh had the story uh that we were talking about too thanks for bringing that up all right well that has been another episode of horror from the high desert uh thank you very much to daniel braun for coming on and thank you guys for listening don't forget to rate review subscribe tell your friends and i will be back with you guys again in a couple weeks